Well, said the heavily bandaged Countess of Lucan from her hospital bed, eyeing her sister and brother-in-law with no great affection. Now who's the one with paranoia, eh? Forty years after the murder of the Lucan's nanny, Sandra Rivet, the answer is pretty much everybody. The events of the night of the 7th of November 1974, when Rivet was bludgeoned to death in the basement of the Lucan's London house, 46 Lower Belgrave Street, the Countess was violently assaulted, and her husband, John Bingham, 7th Earl of Lucan, disappeared, offer all things to all tastes. The story has the violent glamour of crime fiction with the additional thrill of reality, and the facts are just enough to make a narrative, while leaving hugely tantalising areas of doubt. Also, the Lucans looked right. He, the central casting aristocrat, dashing with his guardsman's moustache and a hint of the cad round the eyes. She, tiny beside him, bouffant hair in a velvet band. There followed four decades of obsessive gossip, conspiracy theories, sightings of the Earl on every continent except Antarctica, and grisly accounts of his death, as well as some more thoughtful studies of the case and what it reveals about post-war Britain and its social structure. Thompson's book is a mixture of all these, and the result is persuasive and revealing in some parts, absurd and tasteless in others. Yet it is a compelling read. The story doesn't pall because it has become a myth, and myths change with time. As the Lucan affair recedes to the horizon of living memory, revelations and theories once libelous are now printable, while first-hand recollections become clouded and the pattern of light and shade in the story shifts. Some things have changed less than might have been expected. While the press at the time called it the upstairs-downstairs murder, there is no difficulty, as Thompson points out, in reinterpreting it as a Downton Abbey affair. James Fox's articles in the Sunday Times and the New Review saw in it the whole waterlogged English class system sinking under its own weight. But the system has proved remarkably buoyant. Old Etonians and alumni of the Bullingdon Club continue to thrive. By contrast, their antagonists of 40 years ago, the police and the press, have fared less well. This side of the Stephen Lawrence case and the phone-hacking trials neither has the same level of credibility they enjoyed in the 1970s. Born in 1934, Lucan would have been, or just possibly was, 80 in 2014. The second child and eldest son of George Charles Patrick, Pat Bingham, the sixth Earl, and his wife Caitlin, much was made in 1974 of his ancestry, in particular the life and character of his great-great-grandfather, the Third Earl. In addition to treating his Irish tenants at the time of the famine with a cruelty that was remarkable even by contemporary standards, he also ordered the charge of the Light Brigade at Balaclava in 1854. A brute and an idiot, what else, it was implied, could be expected of his descendants. In fact, as Thompson explains, Lucan's pedigree sported a familiar range of lordly personalities. Like a row of cartoon portraits by Osbert Lancaster, she runs us through them. The first earl was the clever one, a Whig who got the title. The second was the cultured earl, who lived in Italy and commissioned busts of his daughters from Torvaldson. The inevitable spendthrift earl was the fourth. He married a daughter of the Duke of Richmond and lived in style on the far-from-limitless family fortune his enjoyment marred only by half a century spent avoiding his bankers. With the next generation came the reaction. His son, Lucan's grandfather, was the consolidating earl, 
a Privy Councillor and Conservative MP with a devotion to public service. He took control of the estate in 1900 and did what he could to stop the rot. But few noble families could withstand the rigours of the 20th century, and war and taxation reduced the family seat to little more than a golf course. With Lucan's father, there was another reaction, and the birth of that peculiarly modern figure, the Socialist Earl. To the dismay of his parents and some of his children, Pat Bingham and his wife were active members of the Labour Party and anti-apartheid campaigners. He served as an Under-Secretary of State in Attlee's government. They were not unconventional enough, however, to keep their four children in England during the Second World War. Like many who could afford it, they sent them to America. Lucan and his brother and two sisters arrived in Washington in 1940, returning to London in 1945. That episode, his elder sister Jane Griffin told Thompson, was when it all started. Griffin, one of the members of the family who sympathised with her parents' politics, has long made her home in New York. Her account of her childhood and of Lucan's character is balanced, regretful and affectionate. Through her eyes, the man begins to emerge from behind the cardboard cutout, and it is her recollections, and those of Lucan's unnamed school friend, who had not previously told his story, that justify Thompson's subtitle and make the book, at its best, a portrait of the man who is both the centre and the missing middle of the story. In America, the young Binghams were looked after by wealthy connections of their parents, the Brady Tuckers, who lived like Astors with three major houses and behaved with generosity unbounded. Winters in New York, summers in Florida, tennis and swimming and servants to take care of everything else, the children had a whale of a time, except John. His sister remembers her six-year-old brother as puzzlingly miserable in America, and even more so when, at eleven, he came back to the rackety grandeur of their parents' home in Eaton Square. After the trauma of separation, reunion was another shock. The house had been bombed and was now a scene of dust cloths and crazy furniture. The whole city had a weary, shattered appearance, and the rain, the rationing, and a bohemian mother whose hair looked as if someone had stabbed a sofa made a considerable contrast to Park Avenue. His sister thinks that when Lord John Bingham, as he then was, was sent away to summer camp during their time in America, his unhappiness manifested itself in destructiveness. He tried to damage things, as she puts it, and from then on she recalls a restless discontent in him. Intellectually, he was not the dim aristocrat of caricature. He was generally agreed to be intelligent. His school friend remembers him as very bright. Yet, Griffin recalls, he didn't put it to good use. The only thing to which he applied himself at Eton was learning to gamble. His national service with the Coldstream Guards in Germany was largely spent playing poker in the officers' mess and, finding himself for the first time in a country where casinos were legal, learning to gamble on a bigger scale. A fellow officer recalls him getting dressed up for dinner and going out to the best hotels. Quite often he'd hire a car and insist that we all put on our dinner jackets and motor down to the casino at Bad Neuenau. Reaction against his parents' high-mindedness, a temperamental discontent soured by the shocks of evacuation, a desire for money and success but a lack of persistence and application, any or all of these might account for his behaviour and his subsequent career. For five years he worked for a city bank in order to make my pile. 
He wrote to his uncle, with what we may hope was a degree of irony, that he knew money couldn't buy happiness, but that it could buy cars, yachts, expensive holidays and security. And these things, he explained, would make him happy. He reckoned that a large part of success in finance, 20% was where he set it, was due to gambling ability. And in 1958, having not made a fortune in banking, he decided to drop the day job and become a full-time professional gambler. His school friend, who was also in the city, tried to talk him out of it. If he is a less subtle witness than Griffin, he speaks in similarly wistful tones of a man who lacked patience, was very short-sighted about his life, and failed to notice that he had the whole world at his feet, really. Even so, the late 1950s were not a bad time to be a wealthy young nobleman on the loose in London. Lord John Bingham was remarkably handsome, an ornament to both an old idea of society, which was passing, and a new one coming in. 1958 was the last year in which debutantes were presented at court. Mary Quant's shop bazaar had been open in the King's Road since the previous year, and while there were, as ever, socially ambitious people keen to meet aristocrats, there were also, as the much-discussed Princess Margaret set demonstrated, members of the upper classes happier to meet at least the more talented and glamorous members of the lower orders. Yet Thompson fills in this background to Lucan's later life and its ultimate debacle with a clumsily broad brush. The milieu she describes of Terry Thomas dashers and Kay Kendall girls lacking in social self-awareness, for whom the threat of levelling tendencies and the encroachment of Lucky Jim Dixon had yet to loom, is as crude a caricature as anything in the press coverage of the Lucan affair. From this historical distance, it's not only broad trends that are easier to see. Details are also emerging in the memoirs of people, especially women, who were at the time more or less silent witnesses. Among those Thompson should not have ignored are Fiona McCarthy's The Last Curtsy, a witty account of coming out at a time when Debs were turning into dolly birds, and Elizabeth Luard's My Life as a Wife. Luard's book casts a sharp sidelight on the scene Thompson needs to evoke. Her husband Nicholas was an acquaintance of Lucan, and they had an important mutual friend in the painter Dominic Elwes, whose suicide in 1975 was, one way or another, a consequence of the murder in Lower Belgrave Street. Nicholas Luard's headlong career embodied the ethos of the early 1960s in London. Maverick, ambitious, something of a fantasist, he was a co-owner with Peter Cook of Private Eye and the Establishment Club in Soho. He was also an habitué of John Aspinall's gambling club, the Clermont, which became the fulcrum of Lucan's life after he left the bank. When Lucan disappeared, the Clermont set loomed large in the police investigation and the press coverage. Defenders of Lady Lucan felt she was frozen out by them. Detractors said that her unhappy presence on the club's widow's bench embarrassed her husband and helped to undermine the marriage. Elizabeth Luard's impression of the club's atmosphere as one of coldness, indifference and casual misogyny tends to reinforce the former impression. But more important, my life as a wife portrays a world in which everything was a gamble, not just at the tables. As the conventions of the 1950s loosened, harebrained schemes were fashionable, though often doomed. The establishment club failed, taking Luard's modest inheritance with it, and he and Elwes embarked on a succession of get-rich-quick enterprises. Their most entertaining failure was the retractable dog lead, which Elwes patented. Since he and Luard were among the young men invited to dine, without wives, by Princess Margaret, 
they thought she might be persuaded to use it when presenting prizes at Crufts to generate useful publicity. HRH agreed, but in front of curious photographers, she put the spring load on the wrong setting and all but strangled a chihuahua. Sales never recovered. Tellingly, the only Luard Elways venture to make money was their book, Refer to Draw, a guide to confidence trickery. Lucan's attempt to fund a trip to the Cresta Run by beating his fellow hotel guests at Ping Pong was in the same spirit of cockeyed daring do, as was his short powerboat racing career. He entered the 1963 Daily Express race in his top-of-the-range boat, The White Migrant, and his school friend, who was at Lord's for the day, recalls the story unfolding in headlines in the Evening Standard. At lunchtime, it was surprise leader in powerboat race. By close of play, it was powerboat sinks. Well, his friend concludes, I didn't even have to look to see. The set in which Lucan moved was united more by this sort of gambler's bravado than by class. Aspinall, who was arguably Lucan's true nemesis, was the son of an army officer and made his money from the casinos he ran, at first illegally with his mother. Of the other regulars, James Goldsmith made his own fortune in a succession of businesses, including the chain that became Mothercare. The Shand kids' wealth came from wallpaper manufacture, and Ian Maxwell Scott was employed as a director of the Clermont, having bought his substantial home in Sussex on the proceeds of an insurance policy taken out against his wife having twins, which she did in 1966. For a man with plenty of money and a short attention span, it was all good fun. Lucan seems to have been happy enough with his lot and with his friends. When Bill Shand Kidd, to whom he was particularly close, married Christina Duncan, Lucan met Christina's sister Veronica. Whatever his reason for proposing to her, it was not snobbery or financial gain. Her mother and stepfather ran the Wheat Sheaf Inn near Basingstoke, and Veronica, like Fiona McCarthy, was one of a growing number of upper-middle-class girls in reduced family circumstances, who was expected to marry as well as she could. Thompson says the relationship came about in a desultory way. He had to marry to get an heir, the time had come. But the heir to an earldom in want of a wife could scarcely have been short of choice, and he chose her. They married in 1963, and early in 1964, when his father died, Lord Bingham became the seventh Earl of Lucan. It was in the early 1970s that things began to change. The Lucans had three children by then, but the marriage was unhappy, and other good things, especially money, were coming to an end. In a grim economic climate, Aspinall lost a fortune on the stock market and was bailed out by Goldsmith. For Lucan, the effects of the crash were exacerbated by the fact he was gambling too much. Aspinall had no scruples about how much he allowed his supposed friends to lose, and Lucan was losing heavily. He was also drinking and practically living at the Clermont. When new legislation made it illegal for Aspinall to play in his own casino, he sold it in 1972 to Victor Lowndes, owner of the Playboy Club. The old circle was breaking up. The Luards decamped to live cheaply in Spain, where their most grandiose joint enterprise with Elwes, a luxury villa complex called El Cuarton, was soon quite literally sinking. Ian and Susan Maxwell Scott's marriage was as rocky as the Lucans. Susan, the last person known to have seen Lucan alive, was also drinking and behaving oddly. During a weekend both couples and their children spent at the Maxwell Scots' home in Sussex, Susan wrote, Don't let Lord George fall down the fucking stairs in boot polish on the landing wall. The Japes were taking a nightmarish turn, and in an uneasy political climate, grand schemes were getting more serious. 
1974, another Clermont habitué and founder of the SAS, Colonel David Sterling, formed GB75, a vigilante group to be mobilised in the event of civil unrest. Veronica Lucan was not only unhappy, she was mentally fragile, and her relationship with her sister and brother-in-law, volatile. After a spectacularly unhappy Christmas in 1972, the Lucans separated and began a battle for the children. Nobody has ever denied that Lucan was profoundly attached to his children, or that he was dismayed when custody was awarded to Veronica. He became obsessed with getting them back. Edith Sitwell's remark about the Elliots, that at some point in their marriage Tom went mad and promptly certified his wife, may not have been true in that case, but it points to a truth about marriage as folie à deux. It was said by some that Veronica Lucan's medication made her paranoid, by others that her husband embarked on a campaign to drive her mad and prove her unfit to keep the children. He certainly tried to get her admitted to a psychiatric hospital. Wherever it originated, by the end of 1973, the Lucan's marriage was a compound of paranoia and obsession that culminated in the murder of Sandra Rivett. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.